I want to welcome you here on Independence Day as we celebrate our 4th of July. A couple quick announcements. Uh, first of all, next week, July 11th, is our family worship. In preparation for Vacation Bible School, we always have a family worship day the Sunday before. So Pastor Jeremy will be kicking us off. So there will be uh, nursery only for infant through kindergarten. So first through sixth grade will be up here worshiping with their family. Also, one other question that we want to ask you. Next week, we're wide open again, particularly, though, through the rest of the summer. Children are welcome. Um, it's mask optional downstairs. But if you would, could you still register um, your children only because our volunteer team is continuing to grow to meet the class sizes. So it gives us a little bit of a heads up how many children to expect. We're not going to turn anyone away, but if you could register, that would be a big help. And then also, uh, you may have received an email or, or a letter, but this week, because our church is, is experiencing a time of change and transition, one of the most important things we can do is pray. The Bible tells us that their early church was devoted to prayer and fellowship, breaking bread and teaching of the word. So this week we have three nights of open prayer in the Woodside Room, and we're inviting any and all of you to come uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and or Thursday night from 7 to 9. You can come one night or, or several nights. You can arrive and depart at any time that you want. And when you arrive, there's a table with, there'll be tables with papers listing specific prayer requests. So the format of this prayer meeting is it's not going to be led by someone, but rather we're inviting people to come. There's always going to be a pastor or elder. And if you uh, have questions when you come about the gathering, there'll be somebody to guide you. But this is a time just to come for prayer. It's not a time of question and answer. We'll be scheduling other gatherings, as we've mentioned about open forums. But we just want to ask you to come and pray with our leaders. Our, our leadership, we as the pastors and elders, crave, we really want your prayers and we need them. So as we move forward in the spirit, we want to invite you to come and pray with us. Now, let's get down to the word. We're in Revelation chapter 14 this morning. I just want to remind you where we are in the book. If, if you're just joining with us, first century Christians in Asia, Asia Minor, severely persecuted. The Lord Jesus shows up to John and says, I'm giving you a revelation of what I want you to give to my, my people in the first century to help them, to encourage them to persevere. So the big picture we saw in the first three chapters, John has a vision of Christ. He sees Jesus in chapter one. He falls like a dead man. And then Jesus tells him to write to the seven churches. But beginning in chapter four, we see a vision of judgments all the way through chapter 16. John sees these judgments in cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And we mentioned that some Christians think this is only in the future. Many Christians think that this is describing the age of the church and things that we go through. So we were in the middle of looking at the, the trumpet judgments when we came to chapters 12 through 14. So just a quick reminder, in chapters 12 through 14, John is now explaining to us why people hate Christians. So he has this series of seven visions. And remember chapter, chapter 12, he, he has a vision of a woman giving birth to a child who was Jesus. And Jesus is caught up to heaven. The devil is cast down. And then the devil goes out to fight against God's people. We say, well, how does he do that? Well, we just looked in chapter 13. He does that through two beasts. The state, he gives his power to the state to persecute Christians. And then the false prophet, the second beast, religious persecution. 
Well, this morning we're coming into chapter 14, and here we're going to see a series of visions in which John is, he's almost toggling back and forth. One of the things that he's trying to do is if, if, if you're discouraged as a Christian, you need to, to, to hear two things, especially if you're discouraged because people are beating up on you. Number one, you need to be reminded, here's what awaits you. Just hang in there. Here's what awaits you. And number two, you need to be reminded that these people who are beating you, killing you, persecuting you, they're going to be punished. So let's begin in chapter 14, and we're going to see uh, the first three of these visions. The first one that we're going to see is that Christians are redeemed by the Lamb, Jesus, and they're going to sing forever. Let me say that again. Christians are redeemed by the Lamb, Jesus, and they're going to sing forever. So by way of background, I want you to think about this. You'll hear Christians say, we don't know what heaven's going to be like. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. That's not really true. We know a lot of what it's going to be like in heaven because of the book of Revelation. And so this isn't the first time. Just before I read this vision of chapter 14 where we see these singing Christians, John already did this back in chapter 7 when he saw a great multitude and he said, they're before the throne of God. They serve Jesus day and night. He spreads his tabernacle over them. They'll hunger and thirst no more. The sun won't beat down on them. The lamb shall shepherd them and guide them to streams of water. So we're coming out of chapter 13, and, and they're told, this, these fierce beasts, the state and religion are going to come and persecute you. Many of you are going to die. And John's like, all right, let me give you some consolation. So here we're going to look at this wonderful picture. John's going to go, meanwhile, this is what awaits you. So look with me in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Christians are redeemed by Jesus the Lamb and will sing forever. John says, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters. Now, I'm going to suggest that this voice is, is the people singing. Think of Niagara Falls. And like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. What is this mighty, thunderous chorus? Well, verse 3 says, they sang a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Who, who, who are they? These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibates. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and, and no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. What I want to do is note three things about this group. Number one, they're kept. Number two, their chorus. And number three, their character. Now, what I mean by their keptness is this. Who is this 144,000? Now, we suggested that there are many Christians who feel strongly that this is a group of literal Jewish people in the future during the tribulation. Very specific group, possible. Personally, and along with many other Christians, we think that this represents all Christians. 
Well, why use the number 144,000? It's a symbolic number simply to identify the wholeness of the people of God. And I'll give you a couple examples why I think this is the whole church and not just a specific group. Number one, it says they have the name of his father written on their foreheads. Later in the book, in chapter 22, when God comes back, it says there will no longer be any curse, the lamb will be in the midst of them, and his name will be on their foreheads. So in other passages, it doesn't limit God's name on the forehead to just a specific group. So that's one reason why I think this describes all of Christians. Secondly, the 144,000 are sealed back in chapter 7. All Christians are sealed by God. Ephesians 1.13 says that when you believed, you were sealed by the Spirit. So personally, I think John is simply saying, I saw the church. In other words, he's saying, this is who I saw. And the reason I use the word there, keptness. You ever heard the term, he's a kept man? As my wife often reminds me, you're a kept man. No, I'm just kidding. So we are kept by God. Salvation is a, a gift from God. He initiates it. He elects us. The Bible says he chooses us from the foundation of the world. Then he calls us. Then he transforms our heart. And then Jesus prays for us, and he holds on to us, and we persevere to the end. He gets all the glory. 1 Peter chapter 1 says it this way. You are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation revealed in the last days. In fact, we sing this song, and I love this song. I don't like to sing songs about how I'm going to hold on to Jesus. I will hold him fast. I will hold him fast. No, I like to sing, he will hold me fast. Philippians 1.6 says, he that began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. Well, how do I get kept out of this group? Well, let, let's note a couple things about them. First of all, Jesus writes his name on their forehead. You know, you can get tattoos taken off. You can't get the name of Jesus taken off your head if you're a Christian. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus tattoos you on the skull, metaphorically, it says, you're mine. I got you. You're in my hands. Secondly, they're kept in the sense that the Bible tells us that they are redeemed from the earth. They are redeemed from the earth. We've already been purchased by Jesus, already paid for. There's not a 30-day return. We're bought by his blood. We're just waiting for him to come for us. So our, his na our name is on his forehead. We're kept. And then finally, they're called in this passage first fruits to God. First fruits to God. What does that mean to be first fruits to God? Well, in the Old Testament, when they brought in the harvest, the first fruits were set apart to God. And James chapter 1 says it this way every good gift comes down from God. But then it says, We among God's creation, it says, in the exercise of his will, he gave us new birth by the word, so that we would be first fruits among his creatures. So there's what, seven billion people prancing, six, seven billion people prancing around this planet. But every single Christian has been set apart. They're kept by God. We're the first fruits among his people. So we can relax and go, God, thank you. As Brandt reminded us, I'm paid for, I'm purchased, I'm kept by your power. But now the second thing I want us to know quickly is their chorus. 
Notice their chorus. First of all, it says, the sound was like the sound of harpists. Now, what struck me here about these harpists is there's two other passages in the Bible in Revelation that mention that Christians will be with harps. John says in chapter 5, when Jesus took the book, the 24 elders fell down, each one holding a golden harp. And then in chapter 15, we're going we're to see another vision like this. And John says, I saw a sea of glass and those who were victorious over the beast. And it says they're holding the harps of God in their hand. So I actually went on Amazon and I'm trying to find on eBay a used harp because I figure I might as well start harp practice. Like get your harp practice ready because we're going to be playing harps in heaven. Now, is it metaphorical? Maybe, but the point is, there's music in heaven. So think about this, golden harps. But then if that's not enough, not only does it mention golden harps, but then it also mentions they'll sing a new song, a new song. In the Old Testament, the new song was an expression of praise to God for victory. When Moses came across the Red Sea, the song of Miriam, the song of Moses, praise God. So. There, the idea of a new song here is it's a song of redemption. It's a song of praise for victory, the victory that Jesus has over the devil, over sin, and the victory that he has over death. And so if you don't like to sing to Jesus and praise him, especially for what he did on the cross, you're not ready for heaven because that's what we're going to do. Another thing that we praise God for is not only that he saved us, but that he's going to destroy Satan. I was struck by this. In chapter 19, John does it again. He goes, here's another one. I saw a great multitude in heaven. What are they singing? Hallelujah, salvation belongs to our God. Hallelujah, the smoke of our enemies rises forever. Hallelujah, give praise to God, you bondservants. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. So I was thinking about that song, Alleluia, and then we go on and we sing, Alleluia, praise you, God. So, so the point here is that if we're going to be singing like this in heaven, we probably ought to, we, we probably ought to have a little bit of that now. The Spirit of God dwells within us, and the Bible says when we're filled with the Spirit, sing and make melody to your, to your, in your heart. So what I want to encourage you to do is in your heart, you have a playlist, okay? Take a look at it and see if there are songs celebrating not just God's power, but the cross. And I don't care if it's rock, rap, hymns, court, whatever, but get used to singing. Now, the third thing, and this is striking, is John says, not only is, 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 are, are they going to sing a chorus, not only are they kept, but let's look at their character. Why does he say this? As he describes these people, look how he describes them. Verse 3 says, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now, this is another reason why I know some of you are like, this is only Jews in the future. And I go, think about that. When we get to heaven, do you really think there's going to be 144,000 Jews and only they're going to sing this song and we're all going, I want to do that too. Nope, you can't learn this one. This one's for us. So I think it's pretty clear here that this is all Christians will sing songs of praise to God for redemption. The people who can't learn the song, it's not because they're too stupid, it's because they don't get it. They don't love Jesus. The cross is foolishness.
to those who reject Jesus, but to us who are saved, it's the power of God. This struck me because, as you know, I like hymns. Never dawned on me till I thought of this the other day. There's a hymn that goes like this. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king, children of the... Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Exactly. You got nothing to sing about. You can laugh at us for singing about Jesus, but we praise the Lord. We are blessed to be able to sing to the Lord because of his grace toward us. Now, notice, though, that John spends a great deal of time describing their character. He says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women. They're celibates. These are the ones who follow the lamb. These have been purchased as first, first fruits, and no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. Now, again, got two options here. Either these are 144,000 men who are virgins who never got married, right? Or this is simply symbolic language for Christians, which I think that's the point here. So, for example, when it says, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, they're virgins. Has anyone ever read in the Bible that if you're not a virgin, you're defiled? Getting married and having sex in marriage does not defile you. That's a gift from God. So throughout the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, not being defiled is metaphorical. The word defiled is stained. These are the ones who are not stained. Back in chapter 3, the same word is used when John says, blessed are those who do not have their robes stained. James chapter 1 says, you want to know what true religion is? Help orphans and widows and keep yourself unstained by the world. So this is a metaphor, particularly what would have stained these people in the first century is to bow down and commit spiritual adultery by worshiping the emperor. So as, as, as you think about this, there's something that's really important that Christians need to be reminded. Raising your hand, saying you love Jesus, is not necessarily the only evidence of conversion. Now, here's what I mean by that. True conversion produces changed character. Let me make this clear. Just because little Billy raised his hand when he was four years old, that doesn't necessarily mean that a person's a Christian. If a person says they're a Christian, but their lifestyle is full of sin, drunkenness, immorality, lies, deceit, compromise, denying Christ, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not a Christian, but that gap is frightening. Because Jesus warned us, he said, you'll know people by their fruits. So John is not saying here that true Christians never do any of these things, but, but the idea is a pattern, a lifestyle. So for example, in 1 John 3, verse 9, it says, no one who's truly born again will continually practice a life of sin. So all John is saying is, these Christians who are up in heaven are blameless. And as Brandt said, because of what Christ did on the cross. But those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus are called to walk in godly character. It's not one or the other. It's not these good works get you to heaven. But if you're saved... Then, then we should be motivated to say, all right, I don't want to stain myself with sexual sin, with denial of Christ. 
So these character traits are things that Christ is cultivating us. Notice what it says. They're not defiled with women. Number two, they follow the lamb. That's easy, folks. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What does that mean? It means obedience. If my dog says to me, I'm a follower of you, Tom, and I'm going this way and I say, come on, and he goes that way consistently, he's not a follower. So followers of the Lamb are people who take the words of Jesus seriously. We don't do it perfectly, but Jesus said, here's how you'll know if you're my sheep. You'll follow me. You won't say, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm not doing that. Third, so, so, so they're kept from this world. They follow Christ. He says, they're first fruits to God to the Lamb. And then lastly, he says, no lie is found in their mouth. Now, what does that mean? Liar, liar, pants on fire? Do you know at the end of this book, it says, the saints will be in the city of God and outside are the cowards and the liars. You know what the ultimate lie is? The Bible says everyone who denies Jesus, 1 John, is a liar. That's the ultimate lie in all of life, is to deny, to deny that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, creator, savior, judge, the reason that we're here. Anything short of that is a lie. In fact, Romans chapter 1 describes it this way. It says, the world exchanges the truth about God for a lie, the lie, and they worship and serve God's creation rather than the creator. So there's only two groups of people on earth, those who embrace the lie, and the lie is multifaceted. You can be a methobacterian trying to get to heaven by good works, or you can be a godless atheist saying there's no God, but it's all embracing the lie. So when it says there's no liar, first of all, it's they're acknowledging Christ and they won't deny him, but also it does talk about personal integrity. If you lie frequently with no remorse, doesn't bother you at all as long as you don't get caught, then you should say, God, work in my heart. If I'm redeemed, I don't want to be a liar. I've been washed in the blood. Change me. So here we see this heavenly throng. Now, don't miss the big picture. We're, this is us. We're going to be in heaven praising God who redeemed us. And by his grace, we have this chorus and he's changing our character. This is what we call discipleship. So don't go home going, Pastor Tom, beat me up. These are exhortations to go, hey, if there's areas where you're like, wow, this is what I say I believe. This is how I live. Woo, I need to to let the Lord work in my life. Now, let's move from this. The, the, the saints we saw are the ones who are truly able to praise God. We're, we're redeemed and we'll sing forever. The second vision John has is of unbelievers who reject the gospel of the Lamb and they're going to suffer forever. So remember, there's this toggling. This is what you'll be. This is what they'll get. Now, by the way, for those of you who believe that your God would never put anyone in hell, this is a pretty sobering passage. Let's start in verse 6. So John sees seven visions in this chapter. Look at verse 6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven, the earth and the sea and springs of waters. Now, this is a tough verse and here's why. I was trained in a system that said there are various gospels. There's the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of grace. And one of the things that I go, well, wait a minute, this calls it an eternal gospel. So what I want to suggest is that there has been, always will be, one singular gospel. Okay? The gospel is not something that is new in the New Testament. The, the, the broad picture of the gospel of the grace of God includes the fall of man. We're sinners. And because we're sinners, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Secondly, the gospel involves the fact that God would provide for our sin by sending his son to become a man and that the Messiah Jesus would die on the cross, shed his blood and say, it's finished. He didn't say, I'll split it with you. You have to go to purgatory or, you know, this is one of many ways to go to heaven. Jesus paid it all. The Bible says this is the gospel. Christ died for us, was buried and raised again. And then the information of the gospel demands an invitation. If you repent, change your mind about how you've been living, religious or non-religious, and trust in Christ, you will be saved and forgiven. Now, one of the things we have to understand is the gospel does include judgment. Notice what it says. The angel says, fear God, for the hour of his judgment has come. Jesus said, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Peter said it this way in Acts 10, God has called us to preach that one day God has appointed a day in which he will judge all the living and the dead through Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. Well, what does this mean? An angel, an angel in mid-heaven is preaching the gospel. First of all, I don't know why God doesn't do that all the time. To think that he would entrust us to communicate such an important message to people, that in itself is staggering. Like talk about fumbling on the play, the church has always, in spite of, or God has gotten the gospel out in spite of our failure and weakness. But the reality is we can't say, well, I don't need to witness to my neighbor, an angel's gonna fly around and witness to them. All this is, is reminding us is that the gospel call is going out to the world. And you know how it goes out? Through us. And you know how it goes out through us? Two ways, through your life, make the gospel attractive. And through your lips, speak about the gospel. Don't buy this lie, I just witnessed by my life. That's a lie, you can't just witness by your life. Jesus witnessed with his lips and his life. In fact, Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. All who live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So we talk about Christ. We don't go beat people on the head, but we talk about Christ. We ask people, hey, what do you think about God? What do you think about the Bible? And if they don't want to talk about it, they don't. But we don't just go undercover. So the angel's offering the gospel, right? There's this call of the gospel. But we talked about this week. What's the response of the world to the gospel? No, I don't want it. So look at the next vision. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. 
This is like a movie. I'll give you an example. You ever have a movie when some guy comes on the scene, just for a second, and you just get this sense, we're going to see him another, we're going to see him again. He's going to have a role. Well, John did this earlier. Back in chapter 11, he just mentioned the beast. That's it, just that's the beast, right? And then, boom, we come to 13 and he describes it. Well, here John goes, oh, by the way, Babylon. But it's not till we come to chapter 17 and 18, when we get there, two full chapters on Babylon. But for now, let me just say this. My sense is that Babylon represents the world. You say, well, how do you get that, Tom? How do you get that Babylon is the world? Well, there's a couple things. First of all, ancient Babylon was the center of idolatry and immorality. The city of Babel was, was, the, was in essence, think about it, it's the paramount pinnacle of rebellion. Genesis, God says, spread out and multiply and fill the earth. And the world gathers in Babylon in disobedience to God to build a city and a tower up to God. So Babylon throughout the Bible becomes an image for the world in its rebellion against God. And so when he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon, it's a preview of the judgment that God's going to bring on this world. Now, we don't have time to develop that, but let me just say this. There's the call of the gospel, the condemnation of the world, and then individually you might be asking, so what if? What if I don't want to be a Christian? You can't make me. You can't judge me. You talking to me? I'll do it my way. I go, hey, don't shoot the messenger. But here's what the Bible says will happen to every person who rejects Jesus. And this is the most sobering passage in the entire Bible on hell in my judgment. And I, I don't take delight in talking about this. But, but you will hear people today, Christians going, God wouldn't put people in hell. I believe hell's just temporary. There, this is another example of Satan using false deceivers to, to blur the edges of Christianity. If hell wasn't real and eternal, then in my mind, you know what? Become a Christian if you want. Skip it if you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. But if this is what awaits the eternal destiny of those who reject Christ, then there's a real, real weight to this. This is why when I lead someone to Christ or hear if someone's a new Christian and I say to them, did you tell your family? And they're like, no, it's been a year. I haven't told my family. I go, do you believe that your family will experience this if they don't get saved? Oh, yeah. Well, why wouldn't you tell them? I got the cure to cancer. But I'm not going to tell them? Well, they might get mad at me. Well, expect that they might get mad at you. So, so let's look at the description. Verse 9, and it's sobering. And I saw another angel, a third one, following them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Now, let me just start with that. What does that mean? Does that mean you took the blasphemy challenge? You told God, I don't like you. When John describes here receiving the mark of the beast, remember we said this is not getting, a, I don't think, getting a chip in your hand. This is choosing sin and self and the world over Christ. It's that simple. You either choose to follow Christ and trust him or you choose not to. 
So in the meantime, those who do choose to have to persevere by God's grace. He keeps us, but that's why John is urging these Christians, don't give up, don't bow down, don't go, I don't want to lose my job or I don't want to get hurt, so I'm denying Christianity. Persevere, it's worth it. So notice how he describes hell. He said, they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Now look at verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and who, whoever receives the mark on his, of his name. In other words, those who reject Christ, this is what awaits them. Now, I need to say a couple of things. Number one, God takes no pleasure in this. God's not this sick, mad scientist who wants to torture people. The Bible says God is not willing for any to perish. What more could he give than his only son to spare us? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. God's desire is that Men and women, boys and girls all over the world will be saved, right? But secondly, it shows us the seriousness of sin. This is, rejecting Christ is not like spilling your milk and getting a beating for it. Rejecting Christ is rebellion against Almighty God, our Creator, and His holiness demands that the consequences be paid. And so, Please don't let anyone tell you hell isn't real, that hell isn't eternal. But also, you don't have to be terrified of hell unless you refuse to repent. Sometimes people say, you're trying to scare me? I go, I'm not trying to scare you. But I think that passage ought to scare you. But if you have come to Christ, you don't have to be scared. Don't go, oh, what if he does that to me? Come to Jesus. Jesus said, all who come to me, I won't cast them out. Give your life to Jesus, trust in his blood, and being saved by his blood, Paul says, will be spared from the wrath of God. So, we've seen a couple things. Those who, who are redeemed are, are, are going to sing forever. Those who reject Christ are going to suffer forever. And now John gives the application. And it's, and it's pretty simple. The application is going to be simply this. Persevere in your faith and obedience. And if you do, you're going to rest forever. Just, just put your trust in Christ and hold on to that and try to do what he says. So look how he closes. John says, here is the, the perseverance of the saints. This is what we said. This is not like some little future book, we're not going to be here. This is the here and now for every Christian. The devil wants you to turn your back. It's not worth it. Jesus doesn't love you. It's, you know, look what happens when you follow Christ. God says, just, I'm clinging to you, so just hang in there. This is not the first time John said, here's the perseverance of saints. But notice, the perseverance of the saints who do what? Who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, let me just give you four things quickly. Number one, just rejoice. If you're a Christian, thank you, God, that my salvation is entirely from you. Keep me, Jesus. Hold me fast. Rejoice that you're kept. 
Number two, but persevere in purity. If you go, I know I'm forgiven, but if you're not living that way, then ask God to help you to turn from those things that are staining you and grow you. Christianity is not a little red train. I think I can. It's all things to Christ who strengthens us. That's why we need each other. But then third, I want to encourage you to continue not only in your obedience, but in your praise. So my wife and I have been thinking, um, our grandkids, we want them to have the heritage of Christian songs. So we moved our piano, got it tuned, and my wife and I used to, and we still do from time to time, we'll just sing hymns together. But we sat the four little squirts on, on, down and we said, we're gonna learn a, a song. And as many of you know, this could go either way, right? This could go south quick. But guess what hymn we picked? Trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a blessing he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. That's what perseverance is. Keep trusting, keep obeying. And I told my wife this morning, if you could have seen their little eyes, it wasn't us, thank God, but their little eyes were sparkling. Sing it again. Can we do it again? Can we do it again? And we sang it over and over again. And so I hope you're encouraged this morning. Our Savior, the Lamb, is sitting on the throne. He's keeping us. But there's a gospel to get out there. And there's a call. And if you're going, man, my life is so different from what this says, then just ask the Lord to change you. And if you're out there going, I don't want to go down there. I don't want to be in that. You don't have to. Come to Christ today. Right there in your seat. Whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. Best you know how, just say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I believe you. Change me, forgive me. And he will meet you right there in your seat. Amen? Father, thank you for our time in your word. It's really encouraging to see what awaits us in heaven. One day we'll stand with the lamb, but we don't have to wait to follow the lamb. I'll be the first one to ask forgiveness, Jesus. It's not easy to follow you in this world. So help us because we're washed in your blood, to live like those who are washed in your blood, and then to share that witness with others. Put a new song in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your Independence Weekend.